Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's History Class. And today we're going to continue with our Native American Indians of Texas, these prehistoric Indians and the ones that were here. And by the way, to be a Texas Indian by definition, you have to be here before Columbus discovered America, which you all know was in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And so the next ones we're going to do are the ones that live down in Galveston. And so all of you podcasters that go to Splash Day, when you're out there splashing around in the Gulf of Mexico, every now and then stop and remember the ones that splashed around in the Gulf of Mexico hundreds and hundreds of years before you did. And these are the Karankawal Indians. Now, once more, the correct pronunciation of Karankawal is the way the Spanish would have said it. But my language is East Texan and English as a second language. And the way I pronounce it is Karankawal. And as I told you in the podcast before, these are not what they call themselves. 99.9% of all the Native American Indians that I'm aware of call themselves people or the real humans. Why the real humans? Because those other people may be people, but we, we are the real humans. And so the word that was given to these people was the Karankawal. And I will spell it for you because only one of you have a study guide. K A R A N. K-A-W-A, and if there's more than one, put an S on it, Karanka Walls. And, of course, what does that name mean? It means, all right, here we go. Every now and then when I come to a stoplight and there is a car ahead of me, I will see a license plate. And on the license plate, it has our, they have a, a little red heart, our heart, Dogs. I heart dogs. I assume that means I love dogs. Well, well, well. Crankawall means dog lovers. So Crankawall hearted dogs, right? Don't think so. The reason they hearted dogs if they were Crankawall is not because they like to pet Fido but because when they smelled something in the cooking pot and it really smelled good and you just hope, could it be, could it be? Yes, it's Fido stew. Now, podcasters, do you ever remember a movie that you saw years ago, but you can't remember who the star was except it was some leading male actor, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, somebody like that. And the reason we guys thought it was such a neat movie was because Paul Newman or Steve McQueen or whoever it was was an Apache, but not one that lived in the wild. He was one that, he had been with the Americans. And he said only a few lines, but the lines he said were exactly what was needed, no more and no less. We thought that was neat. And in one of the scenes, he is riding in a stagecoach. And there's a lovely lady sitting across from him. She's a white. And he looks up at her and he says, you don't like Indians, do you? 
And she says, no, I don't. And then he asked, why not? And she said, Indians eat dogs. And he said, you'd eat dogs too if you were hungry. Podcasters. There are some Indians that did eat dogs when they were hungry, when they were starving. Comanche was one, which I will talk about later on. But they ate dog because it was their favorite meal, their favorite meal. And they were not starving like the Comanche might be when they ate dogs. They loved dog like it was their favorite, favorite, favorite. Now, I do have some dog eating stories. I don't have one from the Cranker Wall, but I have a couple of dog eating stories that I'm going to share with you because... If I say that Indians ate dog and I can't give you a dog eating story, then how do you know you weren't there? These stories come from professors that I had when I was taking summer courses, getting my graduate degree at Stephen F. Austin State University, and from books that I have read. I'm going to just tell you a couple of them. A couple. One of them was two Frenchmen were coming down the Mississippi River in the 1660s hoping it might be the Northwest Passage. I'll talk more about that when I get to the French. Now, they had been out there floating in this canoe for several weeks and had not seen anybody else. They were getting sick and tired of looking at each other, and they want desperately to see someone besides the other person in the canoe with them. How desperate are they to see someone other than the person in the canoe with them? Well, they're going to bet their lives on this, people. They're going to bet your life. And when I get way into the podcasting, way into the Vietnam, I will tell you about a Groucho Marx show, You Bet Your Life. How desperate were they? They come down the Mississippi, they go around the bend, and they look up on the shoreline, and there's about 50 canoes been pulled up, which means... There are Indians living nearby. They pull ashore to go and see who these Indians are because they have gotten sick and tired of just looking at each other. Remember, podcasters, they lie to the village. And when I was growing up, I was told you can't sneak up on Indians. Those Indians did not even see them. They stopped at the edge of the village. The Indians were going about their daily routine, did not see them. And then all of a sudden, one of the two Frenchmen said, Hello? And those Indians stopped dead in their tracks, like frozen little statues. And one older Indian comes walking through the Indians that are standing there like statues. And when he sees these two people, he puts his hands up, guards his eyes from the sun, And he says, the sun shines brightest when French are in my camp. My food tastes its best when French are in my camp. Stop right there. Podcasters, I want you to realize what I just said, that Indian quote. The French are there. He knows they are French. And not only does he know they are French and he's never seen them before in his life, 
His food tastes best when French are in his camp. What does that tell you, podcasters? Oh, podcasters. Let me tell you, if you've not already figured it out, there have been other Frenchmen down the river before these two. We'll never know who they were, except they were French. French are in my camp. My food tastes best when French are in my camp. They got along with the Indians better than any other people that come over here. In fact, the way they got along with the Indians will be later called the French method and will be tried by Texicans in Texas. But if it's the French method, only the French can do it. That is earth-shaking, people. But back to these two travelers, Marquette and Joliet. Then he asked them what Indians normally ask someone they've never seen before. Some stranger, some traveler. Are you hungry? Well, Marquette and Joliet said, well, yeah, they haven't had anything. They could eat a bite. And he says, come with me. Now, how are they communicating with each other? That Indian, I do not believe, is speaking French and that the French are not speaking whatever dialect that Indian would be. This would be by hand gestures. It would be by putting the hands up and all that kind of stuff. But it also could be that the French, especially the Jesuit, Joliet, know some of the language. We only know what we know. And so, one way or another, he tells them, come with me, I've got something for you to eat. They follow him into his little hut, and they sit down, and right then two other Indians come in, each one of them holding a platter. They kneel in front of each of the Frenchmen, and each of the Indians with the platter will scoop up something in their hands and stuff it in the Frenchman's mouth that they're sitting in front of. Marquette and Joliet later on said it tasted like some type of cornmeal. Then those two leave, and two more Indians come in with a platter, and in this platter, they look and see fish. They take the fish and they debone it. Then they blow on it, cool it off, don't want to burn anyone's mouth, stuff it in their mouth and let them eat. When the fish was gone, a third group of Indians come in with a platter. And by this time, the old man who said that his food tastes best when French are in his camp had had about enough of the impolite Frenchman, he said, I give you cornmeal, and you ate it. I give you fish, and you ate it. You never said how delicious it was. You never said you wanted, and I'm making this, you wanted the recipe. In other words, you showed exactly no appreciation for this food. Remember that, podcasters. You know somebody's house and you eat, you ask for the recipe. You tell them how delicious that is. And so to emphasize what the Frenchmen apparently are not realizing, and that is how great this meal is, he said, do you know what is on the platters in front of you now? They looked down and they said, no, well, not really. When I put my hands up and I said the sun shines brightest when French are in my camp, you remember that? You remember when I asked if you were hungry and you said you were? You remember that? And I said, follow me. You remember that? 
You remember the dog that was barking? That's on the platter in front of you. That's not just some dog we dragged out of the freezer. That's Rush Dead Dog. You know that Marquette and Joliet believed that they had overdone themselves on the fish and the cornmeal and they were not hungry anymore? You want another dog-eating story, podcasters? This is a man named Francis Parkman. Francis Parkman had a problem that I'm sure many of you have. He graduated from Harvard as a history major, and he was so rich he'd never have to work a day in his life. What was he to do? Fortunately for us historians, he decided to spend the rest of his life writing about the struggle between the French and the English for the northeastern part of the United States. This includes the French and Indian War, the Pontiac Conspiracy, the French and the New World. Great, 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 great books, people. But... By the time Parkman was going to write about these people, all of the Indians that he's going to be writing about no longer exist in their original state. So he wanted to go see some Indians in their original state. So he went west. He wrote a book about it called The Oregon Trail. And one day, and this was told to me, by the way, by a professor in class, he's walking through the Cheyenne camp and a dog bit him. Ever been bitten by a dog, podcaster? You gonna reach down and pet Fido? Oh, cute little doggy. Ooh, 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 ooh. Parkman pulled out a Colt revolver and shot that dog and killed it dead right there. Bam! And then he remembered. That wasn't my dog. What is a Parkman to do? He took the dog to his teepee and he made dog stew. And then he found out whose dog he had killed, and he went to their teepee, knocked on the teepee flap. And when they showed up, he said, I have good news, and I got bad news. The bad news is I done killed your Fido. The good news is he's ready to eat. Come on over. They ate Parkman's dog stew, and they told Parkman it was undoubtedly the best dog they had ever eaten in their lives. And any time he wanted to kill one of their dogs, he felt free to do it as long as they made dog stew out of it and invited them back. Crankawall, dog lovers. They love eating those dogs. And one other. You all know, I'm sure, about Lewis and Clark. I read their expedition papers. And they said, they noticed that the Indians who lived off dog were much healthier than those who lived off of buffalo. So, when you go to the grocery store, you might want to look over some of the hot dogs, get you something for health reasons. Now, I'm just being silly. You know that, podcaster. But... Dogs were eaten by the Indians, and apparently no one loved eating dog as much as the Crankawall did. Dog lovers, not petting Fido. Now, you remember Devaca and Estevan and how they got stranded in Florida and they made rafts to come across the Gulf of Mexico and only a few of them showed up over here? You remember that story? Where they landed was on a little island which he said in his book that he wrote later, The Owl of Ill Fate. 
No Indian that we're speaking of and have yet to speak of, were they to come back to life today, would have been as terrifying looking as the Karankawal. Now, when they landed, Lavaca and Estevan, two things. When they were floating across the Gulf of Mexico, they had not apparently taken enough food and they started getting hungry. They not only got hungry, they entered into starvation. Podcasters, would you? They started eating the Spaniards that died on their raft. Now I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. When the Corinthians saw that these Spaniards had been eating Spaniards, they were horrified. And there are those who like to say that the Indians never were cannibals, that they never did scalp anyone until we showed them how to do it, and that we who like to say that they were cannibals are only making that up. And the proof is here that the Crankawall were horrified at the Spaniard cannibals. They're misreading the fact. The Crankawall were horrified at the Spanish cannibalism because they were eating their own people. Because I would tell you this, the Crankawall were cannibals and had the reputation of cannibalism far more than any of the other Texas Indians. So you can see a fact and you can misread it. You can misinterpret that fact. Now, the way I see it is when Navaka and Estevan landed their first Karanka wall, what they're going to do is this. In all the moves I've seen about stranded sailors, they barely make it ashore, they almost pass out, and then when they look up, what Navaka would have seen were considered giants. These Karanka wall warriors average six feet in height. Now, there may be quite a few people today that are six feet. What is the big deal? The average Spanish conquistador was about 5'8". If you're 5'8", and you're standing next, next to someone that is six feet, there is a difference, people. They were considered giants among the Texas Indians and among people in that time. That's the first thing that would have gotten Navaka's attention. The next thing... He would have smelled a smell that he did not like. And that smell came because the Karankawal smeared alligator grease all over them and bear grease all over them to prevent them from being bitten by mosquitoes and it did not give off a pleasant odor. And then they're going to see the tattoos. These men are heavily tattooed and if they are warriors on the warpath, Half their face would be painted red and the other half would be painted black. And last, but certainly not least, the bow and the arrows. They had the most powerful bows of any Indians that I know of. Now they will live into historical times. We're going to have accounts that are written down by Texas Rangers and others that had fought with the Karanka Wall. And one was that the bow of a Karankawal warrior, hands of a non-Karankawal, 
is as useless as the bow of a champion in the hands of a commoner. The bow of Ulysses in the hands of a commoner. Powerful, powerful bows. Now, Crankwalls take the Spaniards and they're going to be captives. What were the Crankwalls like? How did they live? To begin with, they were heavily tattooed, painted half their face. They were just like giant warriors, had powerful bows. And they moved around in Galveston in long, narrow, flat-bottom boats. The whole family, they were expert swimmers. And the reason they were expert swimmers, and by the way, most of the people in these days we're talking about did not know how to swim. Even the sailors did not know how to swim. How far can you swim in an ocean anyway? But one of the reasons the Crankwall were expert swimmers is because these flat-bottom boats turned over all the time. And when they turned over, you had to swim or you're going to drown. So they were expert swimmers. They had these long, flat-bottom boats. They were cannibals. And when their children were born, they were not going to be treated like with a quiet But the marriage was this. When a man saw who he wanted to marry, he simply took food over to the in-laws, his future in-laws, to the mothers and father. If they ate the food, then you just got the girl and you were married. For an unknown period of time, it was the son-in-law's duty to provide food for his in-laws. And the wife would take it over on platters, and of course they would have to give something to take back or he would become quite hungry. For an unknown period of time. And when that unknown period of time, when that time was up, and that door shut, I'm going to tell you something, podcasters. You may not have this problem, but around the world, there is a problem called the mother-in-law problem. Now, all of you married podcasters, I know you have the sweetest mother-in-laws, and this is going to be shocking to you. But if you got a sweet mother-in-law, you are very fortunate. It seemed to be the mother-in-law and the son-in-law where the problems got started. When that unknown time period was over and that door shut, then that son-in-law never again to speak to his in-laws, and the in-laws could never again speak to him. Ever. Now, why? What came first? The car wreck or the stop sign? I don't think it takes a lot of brain power to think about this mother-in-law problem. And assume that at one time in Crankwall history, the mother-in-law had been telling the son-in-law all the things he'd been doing wrong and what he needed to do right. And eventually, you can only take so much, and he'd taken more than so much, and he killed the mother-in-law, and then the father-in-law killed. Do you see what started, podcasters? We got Crankwall, Hatfields, and McCoys. And here they are killing off each other, and then somebody said, stop it. Enough. From now on, in-laws will not be speaking to each other. Mother and father-in-laws will leave the son-in-law alone, don't even speak to him, don't even go visit, don't do anything. 
And son-in-law, you do the same with them. And that solved the in-law problem. Another thing that Chronicle like to do is they like to gamble. Now, when I tell you this, I have images coming into my mind. And that is the Crankwall wife getting a little bit upset with her husband. Because, yes, he's been out gambling again. Every time you turn around and you can't see him, he's out there gambling. And so he comes in late. And he's been gambling again. And as the wife gets on to him about gambling, he says to her, I bet you. And I lost. Podcaster, did you hear what I just said? I bet you. And I lost. They would often bet their wives. And they would lose. Sometimes they would swap wives. I've swapped you to two feathers. Divorce among the crank wall was common. They divorced at the drop of a feather unless children were born, and then they stayed close. They stayed together. Now, bringing the child up, especially the boy, they have to become warriors. And their lives are not easy. Their lives are very difficult. And so one of the things that you want to do with the boy as you're bringing him up is you want to get him ready to go podcast him. In a military unit, let's say infantry, and there are those out there that I know that do not know what the infantry is, they're the ones that walk along looking for the enemy. And I will say this 101 times. In war, 90% of the casualties come from the infantry, which make up only 10% of the fighting force. In an infantry unit, why is a combat veteran considered more desirable in your unit than one who's never been in combat. Because they have been in there and they... What the Crankwall did with their boys, they wanted them to get used to being in danger. So they would court danger. And so the way I would look at it is this. The little boy, he's going to go out and play. And he tells his mother, I'm going to go play. I'm going to go climb trees. And I'm going to go over with some other of my friends, and we're all going to climb trees. And the mother would say, oh, I'm so proud of you for climbing those trees, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to go up that tree higher than any other boy. And if there's a limb, you get out on that limb, further out on that limb than any other boy. You understand? Wherever there is danger, I want you to be in the most danger. Could you do that for mommy? Make mommy proud. Yes, mama, I'll do that for you. And then when you've done climbing trees, you know that part of the beach over there where there's absolutely no shade? Can you wait till about 2 p.m., although you don't know what that is, you just wait until the sun is the hottest and that sand is the hottest? Would you do this for mommy? And you go to that sand and you roll around in it and don't you say ouch one at a time. And then when the winter time comes, go find a little pond. One that's got ice on it. 
and I want you to go in that pond, and I want you to go further and stay longer than anybody. Could you do that for mommy, please, 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 please? You know what they're doing. They want them to get used to this so that when they go into combat, courting danger would be second thing, second to nature. It would be nothing to worry about because they've done it since they were growing up. And so that's the way they were raised. And then when they went to war, it was just like with the quiet teacher. It was hit and run. They scalped. They came back with a scalp dance. They were cannibals. They ate the captives and all that kind of stuff. They did all that. One other thing, too. And I'm going to talk more about this with other tribes. But the names of the children. I'm going to say this now, and then I'm going to repeat it again later. Then I'm sure there's a lot of times when the expected mother and the father are talking about when they're going to name their son and what they're going to name him. And they get deciding, well, we got to remember the wealthy uncle. Well, I don't like that uncle. I like the... And they start to get in an argument about what name for their son. Or even their daughter. And then someone tells them what Shakespeare said. What's in a name? Would a rose smell sweeter by any other name? Well, I would tell you this. Indians did not believe that. I'm going to repeat this. If you heard that as an Indian and you say you name that rose cactus and you see what happens. Names were very important to them. When the Crankle was born, he was given two names at birth. The boy was. One was a name, like a nickname that he's going to use. That's what you're going to call him. Come here, Two Feathers. And the other one is a secret name that contains magic. He can't say that name, but it has magic. Magic, podcasters, does not mean the ability to pull a rabbit out of a war bonnet. That is our term for it. It's something that gives them power. It helps them through life. It helps them become great warriors. The secret name contained magic. The other name was a public name that you used. Now, when the Vak and Esteban were there, one of the many things I was taught when I was young, growing up, was that the Indians looked at the Europeans because they had beards, and they thought they were some type of god. That was not true. That's something that we said. That was not true. And the reason was, when I talk about Cortez later on going into the Aztec and Montezuma, Montezuma had a beard. And were we in class, I would show you some photographs of Indians taken in the 1860s and 1870s, and you would see their mustaches and one of them with a neatly trimmed goatee. But they did think they had some type of power because they were so different. And the Crankwall believed that about Devaca and Esteban. And so one day, while Devaca was with the Crankwall, a sick Crankwall came in. And the Crankwall decided that perhaps 
the vodka had some type of power to heal him. And so they made motions to the vodka to heal this man who apparently had some type of bellyache. And the vodka said in his journal, they wanted me to heal him without even asking for my credentials, not caring whether I've gone to medical school or not, which doctors in those days didn't. And they insisted on it, so he went over there and he knelt down beside this crank wall who apparently had a stomach problem. He said a quick prayer and then he moved his hands back and forth over the crank wall's belly. And all of a sudden, I would imagine Devaka was as shocked as anybody. That crank wall jumped up, rubbed his belly, said, I feel much better, and went over and started eating dog stew, and he was healed. Podcaster, what do you call that? Was that luck? Well, not if you're Devaka. What Devaka said was, I did not realize I had this power. And neither did those crank wall. And so now they start having crank wall come from many miles away to come see Dr. Devaka. Estevan also did this. And one day, one of the crank wall warriors came in and had an arrow in him. And they wanted Devaka to take that arrow out of him. Lavaca had never performed surgery in his life. And so what he does is he gets a, a flint knife and he kind of moves it into the skin and he works that arrowhead out. And that is the first known surgery that we know of. Because of that, the Texas Surgical Society today, their symbol is this. Now, Lavaca means head of the cow. And I think I told you this before. That does not mean that he looked like the head of a cow. That means there's something about the skull of a cow being used to mark a trail with one. So the Texas Surgical Society is the skull of a cow and an arrow, the Texas Surgical Society for Devaca. So Devaca starts practicing medicine. Now they also had doctors, which they call shamans. Now, the way they went to medical school was a little bit different. They would be given a portion of drink, and this would have them go unconscious. And while they were unconscious, they were given all types of remedies and cures. And so when they became conscious again, they had been to medical school, and they knew what they were doing. The way they practiced medicine was this. Stomachache. He go see one of the shamans. What's wrong with you? Well, my stomach's been hurting for a couple of days, so I thought I would drop by. Okay. So they took me inside the little hut. They had him lay down. They put a blanket over him. And the shaman, as only a shaman can do, reached under that blanket without even touching the crank wall. And they pulled out what had been causing that stomach problem. In this case, a rock. They took that rock. They showed you that crank wall. You see this? That's what was causing that stomach problem. Oh, he would say, 
You know, I feel better already. Oh my, well, let me make sure I got them all. And then go back under, move that hand back and forth and bring out a few more. And then he would throw them off so they would not get back in that crank wall. How do you feel now, Mr. Crankwall? Podcaster. If someone had taken rocks out of your belly, how would you feel? Oh, you feel really, really good. Oh, 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 you're the best shaman I've ever seen. Thank you. Thank you. If you go to the doctor and you're leaving, you might get a bill. If you were a crankwall, and that shaman cured you, you're going to get a bill too. Some of these bills could literally bankrupt these people. That was the medicines that they practiced. There were other times too that they, they would put you on a rage and build a fire under you. And when you said you felt better, they'd take you off. That also seemed to work. The Crankwall were interesting people. They traveled not as much as what the Quaisekin did, they were living in the Galveston area and they should have been masters of that environment, but they weren't. They were somewhat better off than the Quaiteca and look where they are living. They had animals to eat. They had fish to eat. But they were not much better off. Well, with the Quaiteca moving like two times a day, constantly moving, the crank wall moved every couple of weeks. Now, Lavaca and Estevan eventually escaped from the Cranker Wall, and the Cranker Wall continued on into historical time. And that's it for the Cranker Wall. The next group of Americans that we're going to talk about, Native American Indians, will be the Caddo. Okay? And I will see you then. Bye bye.